So we're going to go ahead and get started. So good afternoon. I'm Corinne Stoll from UCF's Center for Distributed Learning, and I would like to welcome you to Leveraging OAR, Creating an Affordable and Customized Student Learning Experience, part of UCF's faculty seminars on online and online teaching. I see we have a few responses to our poll question up here on screen, so feel free to respond to that if you haven't already. So our intention in each of these 30-minute seminars is to provide a brief treatment of a topic relevant to online teaching. The aim is to connect our participants to an <coughs> array of resources for more detailed follow-up. We believe that today's seminar will be successful if you walk away with at least one new idea that you can put into action in your online teaching. I would like to acknowledge the participants on-site with us here in 161 in the library, as well as those participating online via YouTube Live. Our participants are in good hands with Dr. Linda Futch and Dr. Beth Nettles as online moderators, and Jonathan Pizu and Ariana Davis ensuring technical quality. In the feedback form for today's session, feel free to share any unanswered questions or any relevant ideas or resources that you think would benefit others, and we'll follow up with these after the session. So with that, please join me in welcoming today's speakers, Dr. Bruce Wilson and Jim Paradiso. Take it away. Hi, guys. Um, I'll kind of be first on the... Uh, on the agenda for today. So I'm gonna bring you through a few uh, slides about what OER is, and it seems like people are familiar with it uh, to some extent. Um, and Bruce kind of falls into this last category. So you'll hear from him, of, and he actually used OER to replace a textbook in his course. So you'll kind of get that perspective from him, and I'll give you kind of more general to, to start. So um, there's our names, of course. And uh, so today's agenda is basically gonna take us through a bit, a short definition, the type of, I can't see from there, so I'm going to come out here a little bit. The types of uh, uh, licensed materials that exist, where to find them, um, Bruce's perspective in this case, and then use cases for yourself, something that hopefully be applied in your course as well. Um, so I just grabbed this from the William and uh, Flora Hewlett Foundation, and it uh, identifies, I think is a great definition for what open educational resources are, uh, mainly uh, materials that it reside in the public domain under an open license that uh, permit no cost access and use at for no or limited restrictions, depending on the license type, of course. Uh, we'll see a little bit more about that in a second. Um, here are the, the main, in my opinion, some of the main areas where you can access entire textbooks or uh, supplementary material. Um, sort of newer one on this list, I think, is this Mason OER MetaFinder. It's out of George Mason University. And in here, this is a great place to start if you're just looking for <coughs> materials to supplement your course, and you can choose from a variety of repositories, uh, repositories, including all the ones that you see on the periphery here. So OER Commons, uh, BC Campus, et cetera. Uh, OpenStax has uh, been around a while and is very well known. You see that up in the top. BC Campus is out of uh, a Canadian-based uh, uh, sort of institution that um, functions off of uh, support from, from that region. And it's, it's very well funded and they've done a lot of great work and have a lot of uh, materials there available. Open textbook libraries out of the University of Minnesota, they, they operate a really wide network as well and have a lot of text available. And, and Lumen Learning um, actually provides quite a few titles as well. A lot of them were, have been borrowed or used and collaborated between OpenStax, text, et cetera. Lumen, you'll see fine in a minute here, is actually connected to the platform we're using and it's, that's called Pressbooks. They use that same sort of platform to construct their materials. 
so what type of materials can you use and uh, in what ways can you use them? This is a variety of licenses, and I will have descriptions of them come slide in here in a minute. But I want you to just focus on the left side first and look at this first item, which is you know public domain, right? And you may be familiar with what that is. Basically, gives you the most. It's the most open, free, liberal use that you can have with the text. It goes down the list as the most in, uh, getting more restrictive until you get down to what is you know all rights reserved, which are your traditional textbooks, right? In most cases, will be down here. Then all of these are considered open open licenses. So what all that code basically means is um, this, and they have little acronyms that they use to describe what what the freedom that you have with them. So CC BY is this one up top, and it just goes down the list. Then these are more restrictive here. Um, I don't want to get too deep into it because I know you know how to read, but um, good practice um, or is to, if you even create your own stuff and want to share in, a, in the community, um, CC BY is a great license to use because it allows others the most flexibility. And when you start combining, let's say you find some openly licensed stuff in this realm of CC BY and CSA, which is very common in like public institutions or like uh, co uh, colleges and such. When you try to then combine maybe an OpenStax textbook with this here and say you want to start to put those together into one document, then you start, it starts getting a little complicated because of the license type and mixing them. They're, they're not always compatible. So if a best practice might be, and what some of the open community is really focused on now, is trying to produce quality materials in this realm like OpenStax does because it just gives users the most flexibility to combine and, and meld works together. Um, so That's if you borrow from the net, right? I don't expect you to understand this workflow. So if, you're, if you decided one day though, that you're like, I want to create my own, right? There's <coughs> a very great, very well described workflow for out of the University of Hawaii on kind of how to go through the stages of developing your own. Let's say you just felt the need to do it, and many people do. Um, you start out with the priming phase, pre-production, et cetera, so you consult a librarian get to the specialist development and publishing. So this workflow exists for your reference at a later date in this PowerPoint. I'm not going to go through them all here though. Okay. So as the, that was kind of the background and I want to move into where we landed, where Bruce and I landed, um, what was it, two semesters ago, yes? And um, this platform here, Pressbook, which I mentioned Lumen <coughs> Learning also uses, it's a company, right? Can Canadian-based company again, that has um, developed an authoring platform. And it functions kind of like a WordPress website would, right? And it's actually a WordPress plugin in practical purposes. So you have a lot of flexibility to create dynamic text, et cetera. And depending on which plugins you have integrated with your Pressbook, uh, you can do a variety of things with it. Um, I'll let Bruce, is about to jump in here in a minute, but I want to give you just a little uh, plug about what we've done with it thus far and what we're hoping to do with Pressbooks in at UCF and on this campus. Um, I realize creating a textbook, right? I mean, it's no one really has time to, to do much. Creating your Canvas course is complicated enough, right? Making sure all that material is there. So as you go in and you, and you start to think about now writing a, an entire textbook, <coughs> it's, it's very more complicated. So I've taken a, a spattering of texts that I think are maybe high enrollment courses or high impact courses 
and that have open the license textbooks already available and I've started to bring them into the platform, clean them up and make them usable so that you guys, maybe you're a history teacher or a sociology teacher or something, instead of you having to worry about the sort of capacity it will take to actually put this book into like work, that you can edit it, change it, add stuff, put video, do whatever you want because it's openly licensed in that form. You can adapt it however you want. We started to build this repository. Um, the title, the list is growing and any requests that come in, I'll of course accommodate that and it's not that <coughs> much of a process on our end to actually ingest the textbook and clean it up for you. So this is kind of what's on the horizon. You can see a variety. Doesn't have to be a full textbook. You can, <laughs> as you see down here, right? I mean, the, the idea of building a, a, a handbook or a supplement to a course, that's also, uh, you can use this platform for that as well. So, um, I'm gonna let Bruce kind of take it away into his, his use case and, and where he began. Okay, thanks for, for being here this, uh, this afternoon. So, the particular class that I, I use this with is, is a GEP, American National Government class. And so we have in the class anywhere between 150 students in the summertime to like between the highest it's been is about 550 students during a, a regular semester. Um, the problem has been, and this is a tension that we all face when trying to pick textbooks, is the tension between a quality book and an affordable book. And this has been a fundamental problem that I've struggled with for, for many years. Uh, and to me, one of the things I've actually really enjoyed about teaching at UCF for the last 20 some years is that this is a place that opens up opportunities for people, that we don't put hurdles in the way of people attempting to get degrees, people who don't know how these s institutions work. So I had this problem of the American National Government class. So these are primarily, well, they're not all freshmen, but they're not necessarily our majors either. But they, they often come to UCF, and this may be the first class they take, particularly in the summer. Um, so the first question was about cost. And that is, the typical book, the one we used to use was between about $60 and $70 per, per student. A lot of students never buy the book. They don't crack the book. So even though I used to use quiz questions to make them at least scan the book, okay, at least I thought that's what I was doing. Um, turns out that wasn't quite the case either. There's a lot of them still won't actually buy the book, not because they don't want to, but because they can't, right? And then a whole bunch of other people, and this is a, a probably a even more fundamental problem, is that they can't buy the book until their financial aid is released. So the semester I just finished teaching, like summer A, six weeks long, so f uh, financial aid is, is released between week two and week three which means that week three is actually midterm time. So with the old publisher, my, the regular textbook, I and mean, I had this book and students quite liked the book. And I used to get the publisher to give me a few chapters at the beginning of the semester that I could put PDFs of those chapters online. But that didn't solve the problem because if the financial aid wasn't or their particular circumstance wasn't, we'd basically built a hurdle that they couldn't succumb to, to actually start the semester on an even platform with everybody else in, in the class. So I started looking for this open access book and I knew that Rice University was where I did my postdoc. I knew that they were looking at creating these and they'd started with, with the hard sciences like algebra and calculus and stuff. But I kept bombarding and said, look, almost every student in the US has to actually take an American government class. Let's do that one. And they did the book and the book is as good as any others. Now the downside of course is it doesn't get updated as much, but that's also part of the upside. One of the problems I had with publishers apart from getting them to deliver the book on time was that the book, they would update the book every single election cycle and then some. 
So the book was coming out almost with a new edition every year, which meant that when my class, students couldn't buy old editions, they had to buy the new one. And the quizzes change every time. So I had to get rid of all the old questions, populate the new questions, and then proof them all right, for the whole database. So this is problematic. And then the final straw came in last year where the election was not anticipated. And the way textbook writers do this is they, they will generally write two versions for the update that comes out right after the election. So you can use it in the spring semester. And they didn't. They wrote one version and they got it wrong. So it meant that the version that they produced and they were wanting me to buy was nonsense. And I was not willing to do this. So we struggled through that semester. Then Jim and I sat down. We had this long conversation about what we could do and what we couldn't do. And so we then switched it over. So right here, so we have first problem, where do they get the books? The financial aid is released way too late for many students to actually get to realistically buy the book in time to, to make a good faith effort in the class from day one. With the open textbooks, they can do this. The other one is the cost. So in my class, my class is alone. So I teach roughly about 800 students in American government per year, which is around about between 50 and $60,000 that they are not spending on textbooks if they all bought new ones, right? Slightly less if they were able to buy second-hand copies, but that's always not, not always the problem. So this way, yeah. So here we have that 72% of students have financial aid. Like this is a huge percentage. And I'm sure, actually, I don't know if this is UCF's number or, or, or the general number, but this is a problem, right? Especially if you don't have your own reserves available to, to buy the books. And usually financial aid covers the buying of the books, right? So that's what you would wait for. So this is a problem. The OpenStax one, it's there instantly. As soon as they log on to the class, we have it embedded into the individual modules so they don't have to go looking for the chapters or anything. It's all seamlessly in there. And they can just like click their way through it and get what they need. There is no funding necessary for the students. They can start the class in good faith, knowing they're going to put their full effort into this without having to come up with problems that they can't surmount because of a lack of, of funding. For me, it helped that, well, helped that Jim was there with the Pressbooks <laughs> solution, right? Because it looks really cool. And the students like this and they can follow through it. And this type of technical capability, I think is really, really helpful in being able to take a book like that and chop it up and fit it in the way that you want to do it. On top of that, you can actually edit it yourself. So if they write in there that the greatest president in the world was fill in the blank and you disagree, you can actually edit this and put in your own evidence as to why you think this is different, right? If you think anything in there is suspect, you can take it out, okay? And make it so that it fits with how you want to teach the class. I think this might be a little more difficult in algebra or, or geometry, but I'm sure the principle is the same. <laughs> so the results are that it reduces a lot of stress, a lot of aggravation that you get at the beginning of class about they can't get access to the book, they can't take the quizzes, can they get extra credit because they can't do this right now, they can't understand this, they can't read. So all of that vanishes. It is, as I mentioned, thanks to Jim and to this press book thing, it's, it's a seamless fix into an existing class. Okay, I mean, I teach this class completely online, and so it's all fits in there just nice, and you wouldn't think this book came from anywhere else. You would think, if I were less honest, that I'd written the damn thing, right? Because it fits with everything else that we're saying in it. And I can write, I can use the book as a skeleton and then write my modules around that and have them do other stuff using the book as the basis. For me, 
it allows me to stick with the schedule. I don't have to write modules in a way that says, okay, there's a good chance that these people are not going to have access to the books. I can't actually make them do that because you're effectively penalizing their grade. So we can remove that problem. Students writing about not having access disappeared. Complaints about the textbook effectively disappeared. And we do have this control that I mentioned a minute ago, right, where you can actually write up what you want and, and how you want it. So the question about whether this is a good book, I mean, this is going to vary by your own discipline and which book you elect to use, but the, the OpenStax one I've been really impressed with. Okay, are there problems with it, like substantive ones? Yes, but so were there with the old textbook I used, but I couldn't fix that one, but I can fix this. Okay, and there aren't that many issues. It's been so far so good. Now back to Jimmy, you can show you how it works. <laughs> All right, thank you for that, Bruce. And um, yeah, so back to the kind of technical side, how it looks, how it works in the day-to-day -day class for a student. I took a couple screenshots that kind of indicated there are actually two ways to access the book through the course. Um, this is module one, for example, his course. So they'll come in, they'll do the intro module, and then this is kind of, it's a very simplified sort of uh, canvas piece there on the development side. When students click that, if they click that and they decide to go this way, they will see the book and obviously it's all just Im embedded right in iframe. They're still in canvas, right? They're still in web courses and they just scroll through the book, move to next chapter, go to table of contents, however they want to do, they can navigate the whole uh, content experience from there. Um, and then they can just, you know, traditionally go to next to access the next item within that, um, within that module. Uh, alternatively, if they go into, sorry, they go into introduction, where it says read this first, and they decide to access it that way, they will go down, they'll see objectives, etc. We formatted these pages, and then we have a, a, a myriad of sort of div containers below here that contain content related to the chapter or an attendance quiz or whatever it might be. If they choose to access that way and click on that chapter one, they will get the actual book as it lives in Pressbooks. So they get a little wider screen experience, but it's practically the same thing. No content is chopped. It all just resizes very comfortably. So that is the um, student experience. And um, as Bruce mentioned, I mean, there was really no, uh, as far as he told me, there was no real student complaint as far as functionality, access, or anything. It lives publicly on the web because it is an open resource, right? So you have to worry about passwords and logins and all these other things. As long as you can log in to Pressbooks, or sorry, as long as you can log in to Canvas and access your course materials, you have access to all the supplementary learning materials and required textbook. So that was been, that's been really, really good for us. Um, I'm nearing the end, and so uh, I kind of just put a final slide in here as to where you could access additional resources about uh, OER and about Pressbooks or any other content things I've touched on today. And that is on the website. If you uh, click and access that, you will get access to a bunch of links and things I've posted there for you guys to use. So um, that's about it, all I have today. And uh, I'm willing to take questions now. I know Corinne has maybe something to say. Well, thank you very much, Bruce and Jim. So, I mean, like you said, um, we can move into the question and answer portion of, of our session now. So, does anyone in room have any questions at this moment? Yes. Okay, here, hang on. So our online audience can hear you. <laughs> Greetings, all. Um, <laughs> so, I teach two of the courses that you sh had shown on the initial okay. page. Yeah. Um, and they were both under revision. Can you kind of May I go back? Is that yes, okay? Yes, please do. So I teach um, Comp 1 and Comp 2. Okay. 
um, completely online. Mm -hmm. um, so where it says under revision, how... Yeah, allow me to explain yeah. that. I apologize. Under revision is something that I've taken in on my own, under my own accord and said these are texts that I think would be, could be leveraged by faculty, but no faculty member has identified I want to use them. So that means I am, we have a full text there that's available and extra, and that I am just cleaning it up. Where it says sandbox, that's one where a faculty member has expressed interest and he, may, he or she may be enrolled in that title. But I mean, I can duplicate as well. So sandbox kind of, sorry for not describing that earlier. Sandbox means a faculty member has expressed interest and they are building and we are working together in there potentially. And then under revision means um, the text is there for your, for, your, you know, for your taking, so to speak. Okay, so if I wanted to have access to those, I would go to the resources website there. If you wanted access to those books, I would add you because there are limited people who are who are admins or super admins of this space, the press book space. But we are able. You could contact me directly, and I can add you. It's as simple as two seconds. I could do it after the session, for example. Okay. Then you would have complete access to it. We could make a copy of it if you wanted to create your own iteration of it. And um, yeah, you can go from there. Okay. Good question. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we have another in-room, and then we can take some online. So a, a question directed to both of you. So you said that um, you had success with these students, and they feel a lot more comfortable using this, um, uh, this system. I mean, have you got any data to show uh, that this really worked and not just intuition? Uh, and if you do have data, uh, apart from talking to groups like us, how do you um, recruit other people? Should I take both? Do you want to take the data part, or, the, or do you want me to take both? Or? You can start. I'll pick up after. Um, we have talked about it. Because it's so new for us, we did our first, when was it that we launched? In, in spring. Spring. So spring of this year, we piloted it. And we didn't have, we didn't put anything through IRB or come up with any official questions or anything. We were just kind of seeing, just testing the waters. Um, in summer, at the beginning of the summer, we talked about maybe, you know, creating something of our own, a survey to be able to administer and, and see how that student reaction is. Because the, the SPI, right, the student perception of, of instruction, doesn't necessarily have uh, items that speak directly to, you know, how was it like to have a free textbook instead of a paid one? So, um, and so we wanted to do that formally. Uh, we haven't undertaken that yet. I'll let Bruce kind of talk about that uh, more if you had different visions or so if you're still open to it. Your question is absolutely the perfect question, right? So, I mean, how do we know this works? Well, so we're not making any claim that this is better than a face-to-face -face class or better than a, a regular textbook, right? Just in this particular context and the sorts of issues that we saw as problems of access, which we do know exist, okay? And... At this point, because we didn't set up with an IRB because we were working over the Christmas break to make this work. Yeah. And so we don't have data at this point, but depending on how what sort of questions you asked, I mean, I'm not sure what the, what the, the null would be what, that, that there's no difference, right? The negative one would be that what, that people learn more in the old textbook? I don't know. So I'm not sure what, 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 what would you actually measure here, right? You can give people the book, but you can't still make them read it. Okay, so we could maybe spot check uh, essays and find out, you know, like say, say like a handful of essays or, or 100 essays from a previous semester using the old textbook, randomly chosen 
and 100 from the current one where this was the book and see if it makes any difference in the quality of the writing, right? But then we have all sorts of other issues in there, but you could maybe glean something about how the book is used. Um, the question about the quality of the book, I think you can, we're all professionals here, right? You can read a book and decide whether you like this book or not, or whether you think it's a pedagogically usefully written book. But I can't measure that myself, right? But I do know that how I want to teach the class, this one works. In other projects and other issues, we have actually done the sort of work that you're talking about, where we've, we've analyzed the data uh, to figure out what students are learning and how they learn in different environments, be that the face-to-face, -face, online, or, or, or a blended format. But at this point, this is purely on faith. This is absolutely anecdotally, except for the certain hard facts are that if students want the book and they don't have any money, they can have it. That part we know for a fact, right? So we know that we've even the playing field, how they want to play on that playing field is still going to be up to them. Okay. We still have students who, who, who may or may not actually do the work or don't want to read the book or whatever. I can't do anything about that. They should in theory get lower grades, right? Because they're not able to articulate what they need to articulate. So it's a long winded answer to a very pertinent question. Yes. No, we don't have data. <laughs> <laughs> And I think All you right. made a great point with the leveling of the playing field part. I think at this point, that was where we were just initially stepping into trying to handle the sort of the big sort of question that OER is trying to sort of solve at this point and then look into what angles can we, can we kind of address as we see um, the, the project developing. So to go into your buy-in piece of getting faculty, other faculty member interested, um, again, we're nascent stages, but what I showed you on that one slide, you know, was part of that, that, uh, building at least a sense of a repository the fact that hey look we can put your text in here and we can work from a space that is kind of user pretty much user friendly and um you have some people to support you in that like the team internally here so. all right listen jim i got seven questions from I'm the sorry. online audience so if you would let okay. us have some of your time of course <laughs> um so the first question is um can you curate different sources of materials into press books yes Good question. Is the press book free for the professor and the student? Yes. Um, can press books help you build a test bank? Mm, well, it depends. I don't know what your, I mean, help you build a test bank. It's not, it doesn't have an assessment engine built into it. Okay. But it has an integration with H5P, for example, which will allow you to build dynamic assessments in it and embed them within your text to make interactive PowerPoints, interactive videos, and that, yeah, it will score that even. Mm -hmm. Okay, do the IDs assist the professors in the creation of the press book? I suppose it depends on, on uh, the process of that ID and professor and that relationship and how it's working. In our case, um, it, was, it was a tandem effort, and I would imagine it would be that way in uh, moving into the future. Cool. Do you feel like these textbooks are updated more often than print textbooks, especially for subjects like American government? I can answer that one. No, they're not, <laughs> right? Which is both good and bad, right? So it's the example I gave about how they had written the wrong textbook updates for from the last election, then this is bad. But the other problem is the state of Florida actually has a rule about whether or not you're allowed to buy an updated textbook. It has to be substantially different from the previous one. A midterm election doesn't make this entire 400-page book substantially different. A presidential election might not either, right? So the question is, how do you how do you 
how do you animate the book and then harness perhaps other materials to update it? So it's not that in my class we don't talk about the last election or what's happened since the last election, we do. But we use this as sort of, this is how the rules of the games of American politics works. Okay, this is the history of American politics. This is the history perhaps of, of civil rights in the United States. But then if you want to deal with something like the Obergefell uh, decision about same-sex marriage, it's not in the book, but we can use that, right? We can, we can write a module that uses that, makes them take the material about civil rights history, civil rights theory, and then apply it to this case. Okay, so you can update it that way. So do they get updated as much? No. And we actually had, the, there was a poll from, from the OpenStax and they asked people, at what point do you think they should update the book? Should it be done every year, every two years, every four years? And the vast majority said four. Like once there's been a presidential election, then you should be updating the book. But there is no need to actually update it as fast as it was being updated because it in many ways can cause more problems than, than it's worth. And for the uh, ambitious, I mean, it can be updated as much as you want, right? That's the end, the end answer, too, that you can take either approach. You, you can rewrite half of the thing if you want to. It's totally up to you. You can cut and paste as you wish because of the license type. The fr it allows you the freedom to do that. Okay, a couple more quick ones. Um, this one writes, um, can, I add my, can I add to my CV what I have saved my students X amount of dollars by using OER in my courses? You can do as you wish, I suppose. Um. But but would you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, this is it's a, a okay. So presupposes that everybody bought the book in the first place. So your your how you'd measure the metric, I don't know. I think you could say that you have saved them that amount of money, whether they choose to buy coffee or buy books, is an individual decision by students, right? And whether it's relevant on a CV, I don't know. Maybe on a tip file, you know, they might want to think that, you know, this is, I'd be nice to students, I'd save them money. That's maybe different from your professional CV where you're trying to tell them that you're a great teacher and a, a professional, et cetera. So I don't know. And I believe that's Bruce's, and then from an instructional designer perspective, like, yes, right? If that's an initiative that I work on or something that I have expertise in, then that becomes a relevant question. So from professor designer, again, it depends what your role is, whether it be pertinent or relevant or even important. On the CD. Right. Um, one more. What are some different types of OERs that might enhance online or hybrid courses? Some other types of OERs. Besides textbooks. Oh, sure. I mean, there are a variety of um, resources that are that are open, right? And if we delve into the world of like open source code, right, that's out there right now that enhance the accessibility of certain features. I mean, I have a list. If you go to the website, you'll see a bunch of stuff that I put there. But um, aside from just flat textbooks, you have, if you go to OER Commons or something, you can look and find assessments or uh, activities, uh, you know, videos, video, yeah, the gamut. It, it stretches every piece, every from software code to textbook to assessments. It's all out there for the taking. It's just a matter of you using, which is why I put together some documentation, put it there, you're just clicking a button, looking at what's available, doing a little bit of uh, deep diving, and you'll see, and, and with the help of, a, if you have instructional designers that you work with, or any support staff for people who are out there in the, in the on listening to me kind of through the, through the live stream, um, any support staff, the library uh, is, a, is, a big, is a big help, and it's actually where I began my first steps when I was looking into OER as a faculty member before I became a designer. I was like, how do I use OER and leverage that? And, and the library was uh, invaluable resources for me, the, the library staff. So 
I would say definitely talk to them as well. All right, perfect. So thank you for answering those, uh, Bruce and Jim. So um, before we go, um, I was I would like to ask both our online and face-to-face -face audience if you would like to fill out the feedback form for the session. Um, you can find that at dl.ucf.edu slash feedback. I believe that's on one of the last slides and mm -hmm. also on the board in here for the on-site participants. Um, more importantly, let me direct your attention again to the session webpage, which contains the many resources from today's seminar. It has lots of links to OER repositories, places you can find different um, online books and materials for you to use, as well as some yeah. additional resources on how to implement and some other um, oh, case studies and, and other resources. Um, you can also find that at dl.ucf.edu slash OER. So we're now going to conclude the recording of this session, but um, for the on-site participants, please stick around for an extended QA session if you would like. Otherwise, thank you for coming and have a great day.